This is Concepts, where two pretentious sirs quibble over ideas that explain today's world. Phil Shea and Steve Rose. I am actually probably going to put in the disclaimer that, yeah, Steve hates this episode because he didn't get to talk very much. Because <laughs> as much as he says that I love the sound of my own voice, he also loves the sound of his. He just wasn't able to contribute much. And uh, yeah, it's his fault. So enjoy. <laughs> enjoy listening to him just kind of begrudgingly listen to me explain this. Welcome to Concepts. Welcome. Today is episode nine, I believe. Already. Already episode nine. We're wow. getting up there. We're getting up there in age. Oh yeah, we should we should <laughs> mention who we are. My name is Phil Shea, and this is Steve Rose. We have not actually ever really pointed out who is who. We haven't. I expect I will have changed that a while ago, but here we are. Here we are, just figuring it out as we go. Right into it today, because this is a huge topic, and I really find it fascinating and want to get through a lot. So I had to cut out much of the book. It's kind of like a book report on Don Norman's The Design of Everyday Things, as well as sections of Design of Future Things. To start off, we should talk about design thinking and its basic steps, which are five steps. Do you want me to just introduce them? Uh, you can introduce them. Oh, so gracious. <laughs> All right. So number one is empathize. See what they care about, what they want to solve, what is the problem that they're trying to solve. A lot of times this is through interviews or focus groups. Then step two is define the problem. So you look at the data that you collected before and you figure out what the real problem is. Because sometimes people say, ah, like my knees hurt. But then you have to figure out why their knees hurt and instead of just treating the knees themselves. Then three is ideation, which is purely a fancy word for brainstorming. Mm -hmm. Four is prototype. So you make a prototype, a basic version, simple as you can afford, essentially. And then step five is test. So you go to the actual users, you get their feedback, you watch them use it in a natural environment. And you take all the feedback, even if it's very cutting and badly framed, you take it and use it to improve your prototype till it gets to a, a feasible form. And this is actually where apparently the term for fail faster came from. If you're going to make a design, a prototype, you want it to fail as quickly as possible so that you can get through that stage of development and continue to refine it till it's as good as it can be. Right. So the concept today is design thinking and not design broadly, right? Yes, though I will probably be focusing much more on human-centered design because that's the more interesting aspect of it mm -hmm. and the one that Don Norman focuses on hugely in his books. Right. And how would you differentiate uh, design thinking from the broader field of design in general? So I know everyone, everyone's likely familiar with the word design, what a designer is, but this is something that's unique and a little bit different. How would you differentiate them? I think when people think design or they think like fashion or something to do yeah. with aesthetics, but design right. is literally anything you can think of that's human generated. So from the structure of a building to a, the shape of a kettle to the processes of manufacture, anything that we engage in it has some level of design involved in it. We talked about Toyota in the past and talked about how they have that system to stop people from making huge mistakes mm -hmm. by a lot empowering the individual. That's a design choice that they did for their production cycle. It's also apparently called the Toyota production system, I think, more broadly speaking. Everything is designed and this is anything you can think of or see that's not purely part of the natural world or hasn't been at least intervened on by humans. It has some element of design in it. Yeah. I just wanted to differentiate that because when you think of design, you think of fashion designers, as you said, but this is just a way of thinking about problems and it's almost like a, an approach to problem solving. Very much, yes. Because this is, when we think about design, we generally think about aesthetics and appearance, but yep. this is not only form, but also function. They should both corroborate corroborate, collaborate together to make an optimal outcome. It should be an enjoyable experience. The designing experiences optimally, experiences and solutions is good design. He points out that engineers typically hate this side of it, talking about experience because it's not objective. It's not measurable. It's, Sub, it's subjective. Subjective, qualitative. It's something they don't like for that reason. But then they themselves, while they think that they are exempt from liking the experiential side, when you ask them what tools they like or well-designed things they enjoy, such as like a fine automobile, they will talk about the experiential side of it. Like, oh, it just, it feels so right. And that's, that's good design. 
One of the common things I'm going to be hitting on here a lot is that Don Norman basically says that almost all the times that we say something is human error when it comes to a product going wrong or something going wrong with machinery or systems, he argues that it's not human error. It's actually design flaw. It's just a bad design. Mm -hmm. And I know many people are going to disagree with that first blush, but give me a chance to <laughs> make the case. Yes. So it's, it's not, uh, it's not human error if you are not knowing how to work your computer uh, it won't turn on you can't figure it out it's a design error you're saying yeah so he gave an example of this woman who was trying to open her filing cabinet it was stuck for some reason and he couldn't she couldn't open it and so she said oh i'm just terrible with mechanical things he thought no like you're not terrible it's the design of this object <laughs> that is flawed it's not you we just have these kind of like learned helplessness yeah that is an issue because then people stop trying right yeah so we blame ourselves when we face a problem rather than a design feature in the the thing itself. Yeah, we kind of expect humans to adapt to machines. He opens the book by basically talking about how doors, light switches, faucets can cause issues. And if you haven't traveled very widely, you might think, what? Faucets? Light switches? These things are so obvious. Yeah, they're obvious. They seem so because we're in this current cultural context. But I used to joke that China was backwards. Like literally, because for them, up is off for light switches and down is on. And North America, generally, it's the opposite. We, for some reason, think up is on. Wow. If it's a, a switch that you flip um, in that way. I think Australia was similar to us as well. And my my actual, my Chinese teacher actually said that it was just, I was in a, a weirdly wired place and that's not the case. Then she went home after arguing with me vehemently about this and discovered to her shock that her switches also were down on. So this is exactly why I think we go to human-centered, this is a nice segue to that, to human-centered design, because the way it deviates from general design thinking is that for the first step, for the one I just outlined, is empathize. That's flawed, deeply, deeply flawed. If you ask people, what do you do? How do you do X? They will describe it to you in detail, but then when you actually watch them in the environment doing this thing, they do something different. And so like my teacher, she, she misremembered that the switches have always been in a different orientation. Instead of just asking people or doing focus groups because those are notorious for getting really slanted and often bad results mm -hmm. you need to actually go and address the exact thing in the environment is being used right which leads us to the double diamond of design so th this is an approach where it's like look getting information on the ground from people who are doing the thing but not just asking them observing what they're actually doing rather than what they're just saying yes in cases like this we cannot take people at their word they might be accurate it's true but chances are they often and as he describes, when they watch people, they say, well, you said you did it this way. I noticed you did this different. Can you explain that? And they said, oh, this time was a different circumstance. As it turns out, different circumstances seem to be every time. <laughs> they don't tend to follow that. I remember a story from Malcolm Gladwell, one of his books. He was talking about how they were trying to teach this particular, I think, a serve or return with the racket. And they're trying to model this one professional's way of doing it. And they always said, you have to turn the wrist. The wrist is the most important part. It's all on the wrist. There was this explosion of carpal tunnel injuries because everyone thought and believed it was the wrist. Everyone was teaching this. Yet afterwards, later, when they were in, they ended up getting that athlete to go into a lab to do computer assisted analysis of how he was actually doing this action. He didn't move his wrist like at all, like very, very minimally. It was mostly in the shoulder, I believe. But it's been a while since I looked at that example. Hmm. OK, so watch what experts do, not what they say. Watch what people do, not what they say. Yeah, it's a, a good rule for general psychology. <laughs> well, I guess in general, yeah. Yeah, uh, I mentioned the double diamond of design. It's a destructive, constructive kind Kind of example. So the divergence and convergence is why they're diamonds. So first you diverge from what is said and then you reconverge with the information or put more simply, you deconstruct something and then you look at the pieces and then you put it back together again in a better or um, more concise form. So the reason it's a double model is because in the first form, it's for divergence and convergence around a problem. First, you discover and define the problem. You do this by expanding the scope of the problem, looking at all fundamental issues, and then collapsing back to a single problem statement. Like I said, they, they might think they want to solve one thing, but that thing is caused by a number of knock-on effects that we could solve if we have a big enough scope. So you have to actually take a while to really look into something and then figure out how to solve it optimally. This reminds me a lot of emergence in a way, where the, the problem was too much complexity and Remember that problem they they were trying to solve the, there was a busy road and they wanted to slow down the traffic mm. so they put road they put road bumps 
on it. And therefore people just avoided the road and then they stopped going to that part of town and then businesses suffered. Is this kind of part of that? It seems related. Yes. Cause it seems like in that complex system, they didn't do enough of this discovery step. The first step mm-hmm. actually looking into and doing research. Cause people think, again, people think things are simple yeah. and also there are realistic binds on our time and what we can do. So economic time in politics, it would be public opinion, a bunch of these things. You have to get them right immediately. Or if you take too long, people whine about it. By not doing proper discovery, you will probably mess something up, which will end up being even worse. Maybe you can get lucky, but either way, it seems like they're kind of rolling the dice. But I did mention this was a double diamond. That's just the discovery part of it. That's the first diamond. The second diamond is develop and deliver. So you brainstorm, you have a ton of different ideas, and then you whittle out the ones that are constrained by the situation or whatever you have on hand. And then you deliver the best possible solution that kind of has a balance between various trade-offs because everything is going to have a trade-off. Mm. But this is kind of funny because it can lead to a lot of frustrations for product and development managers because they'll be like, why are you looking at that? Like, what? I I want you to solve this problem and you're way over there talking about these things. What's going on? And so... They have a a schedule that they want to follow, but sometimes, well, if you want to do it right, then it takes more time. And obviously there are restrictions, but that's the optimal situation. Right. Yeah. It's it's like, uh, we want people to go slower on this road. The most obvious common sense solution is to put speed bumps done. Solved. But there is a a complete lack of design thinking going on here. Yeah. They just took the most obvious answer. Yeah. So, so common sense is not always the best way. And actually there are um, a number of constraints to design that I will get into right now though. I want to talk about human centered design. Wikipedia, I'm just going to pull the first (laughs) paragraph basically, because it's much simpler to define that that quickly. Mm -hmm. Human centered design is an approach to problem solving commonly used in design and management frameworks that develops solutions to problems by involving the human perspective in all steps of the problem solving process. This is very, very important because typically, like I said, engineers will make something in a certain way and they will believe that it's just it's logical and that anybody that's logical should be able to figure this out. <laughs> but they, they ignore the human element, which is in itself extremely illogical because they're designing it not for humans. They're designing it for machines who will be precise. And obviously that's not going to work out very well. Yes. As if humans are completely just rational brains walking around all the time mm. and don't at all have emotional elements. Yes, exactly. And also distractions and interruptions and a bunch of things that end up happening. He goes on for a long time about how mistakes happen. I'm not going to touch it here because it's already, this episode has already ballooned further than I thought was actually going to be manageable. The main difference for human-centered design is that you're always keeping in mind how people are going to be using this. Your audience is always in mind. People are the ones using this thing, so we need to make sure that people are actually thought about and how they will likely be engaging with this. As well, like I said, the main difference between the original steps is that you have to observe people in an environment, not scientifically, but just see what they do. Don't ask them, actually watch them. Mm -hmm. And then you you have to continue reiterating over and over again. There's also another corner called activity-centered design, and that's similar to human-centered design. It's an extension of it, and it features heavier emphasis on the activities that a user would perform with a given piece of technology. Actual theoretical underpinnings are in activity theory, which I'm not entirely, but it is assisting a human user in taking actions to achieve a goal. That's the main thing there. So it's not just experience. It's also about helping them get to where they want to be. I think you mentioned that this was similar to a a kind of therapy. Yeah, a lot of this human-centered and design thinking stuff sounds very similar to person-centered and solution-focused counseling, which I use a lot in my single-session counseling where you have one chance to talk to someone to get them moving in the right direction. Hmm. You really don't want to start exploring every little aspect of their childhood and every little detail of their, of their lives because they came to you today for a very particular purpose. And the goal early in that conversation is to look at why, what brought them to make the call today and what they want to get out of the call. Hmm. And it might sound like a very common sense kind of question. Oh, very much. Well, of course you'd ask that. I was going to ask, what, what is this opposed to? But if you, well, because I guess if you have somebody with a problem in front of you, the average person will, will not necessarily think to go this route. They'll generally try to give reassurance or advice. Mm. Those are the two go-to, like, I'm having this big problem. And then somebody, somebody responds, 
it'll be okay, or you should do this, or a combination of their own. Mm. So in a counseling role, you, you don't want to assume that the person wants a particular thing because they may not. When you ask them, they're like, oh no, I'm actually calling just for this other thing. Uh, when you've Discovery. been giving them something different. So this this person-centered approach, and, and I guess you, I can't look at what they do, I have to ask what they say. Hmm. So the idea of watching what people do doesn't necessarily completely fit, but it's more like, how can I help you here today? What would look like a successful conversation by the end of it? What is it you're actually looking for? Or what is the problem you're actually looking to solve? I think that's the shared ground here where we're actually thinking about people in real environments and not yeah. assuming that it's a simple goal that is on the surface. Yeah, it's a bottom up versus top down thinking in a way top down would be like, here's a template to how to improve your life. Do this simple three step process. And this other, this, this approach would be, well, where are you? Where do you want to go? How can you get there in ways that you've proven you've had strengths in the past hmm. and you're really pulling it out from them to figure it out because you don't know otherwise you're going into the situation blindfolded and you're, you're just trying to find your ground once you're there. Yeah, that makes sense. So letting go of preconceptions of what a thing should be like counseling, uh, you know, it should look like this, the three step protocol and really letting go of the expectations of how something should be uh, and, and going into it, allowing it to emerge. And I guess it's, this does sound like emergence in a way where there's a lot of complex factors interacting and, and something will emerge near the end. And you're just there as a, a facilitator of that. And, and I think that collaborative approach is something that uh, design thinking really or human human centered design is, is really fostering. I'm hesitant to know if that even is the correct application of emergence, but you might be right. I'm just going to put that in there. A confluence of various complex factors interacting in a way that it is, but usually it's yeah, I guess. No, you're probably right. It, it probably does still apply. Well, they have their thoughts, their emotions, their behaviors. Wait, no, hold on though. Emergence is a, a number of simple things having complexity emerge out of it. It's not about a combination of complex factors. It's a lot, like a multitude of simple things having a complexity emerge from that. So their thought could be simple. Their emotion could be simple, their behavior, but then... Well, yes, consciousness and personality are emergent properties of simple things such as right. thoughts and preferences. Yeah. But I don't know that what you're describing before is a proper application, but it's not super important to what we're talking well, about at the moment. This is what we do. We're pretentious sirs who quibble over, over ideas that change the world. Yeah, but I want to get to this. <laughs> Okay. When I get through the interesting parts of design and like you gave me a, such a narrow time frame that I really uh, f screw it. Let's move on. Okay. Move so on. sub areas of design, Don Norman focuses on these three sub areas. And I think I should have probably used this as the answer for when you're asking me to distinguish what design is. So you don't even know what they are. Industrial design, interactive design, and experiential design. So industrial design focuses on form and material. Uh, it maximizes the function, value, and appearance for both user and manufacturer, because again, there are real world constraints here. They have to have a certain price. They have to get it out on a certain time and the user has to be able to afford it. There's all this uh, stuff like that. Interactivity, sorry, interactive design is understandability and usability. So probably more like edutainment and educational stuff. Its main purpose is enhancing people's understanding of what can be done, what is happening, and what just happened. Past, the present, and the future, making it so that people are aware of what's happening. And then experiential design focuses on the emotional impact of stuff, placing focus on quality, enjoyment, and overall experience of using whatever is being designed. From there, I'm going to jump into conceptual models. So a conceptual model is something we probably should have, I've never really heard it talked about too much in our disciplines. Are you familiar with conceptual models? I mean, you can probably guess what I it means. I can probably guess what it means. What is it referring to here? Guess then. It's like a... This is your contribution to this episode. Uh, guess. I can Guess. A conceptual model, it sounds like a theory. It is a conceptual representation of something. So it's in your head how you believe something functions. Yeah, it's like a theory. Yeah. So, more like a hypothesis, if you want to be more technical, but yes, uh, close theory where something's not working and you're trying to fix it your conceptual model will dictate how you approach solving conceptions you mean like a schema it's more like okay if i ask you how explain how an oven works getting the oven to a certain temperature how does that work so the example okay to clarify i'll use i have two bad examples of conceptual models and how they actually work 
suppose you're trying to get your oven to get to a certain temperature and you want it to get there as fast as possible. So what you do is you set it to the max temperature so that it gets to the desired temperature faster. And once it reaches the desired temperature, you shut it off and then make sure it stays there because that will get there faster. This is an erroneous conceptual model of how the oven works. Right. Because the oven is basically on or off. It's either heating or it's not doing anything. Yeah. Putting it at the max temperature is not going to make it use extra energy and get there faster. Like <laughs> The oven's like, oh no, I got to get there real fast. <laughs> oh, it's yeah, it's so far. We better we gotta put this up to eleven. No, it's either zero or one. There is yeah. no gradient. Yeah. So that's that's an erroneous conceptual model where you believe that higher temperatures make it exert more effort. Mm. Or like repeatedly hitting an elevator button. They don't actually do anything. If you believe it is doing something other than just comforting yourself, that's an erroneous conceptual model. Your concept of how this thing works, your schema, I guess you could say, yeah, sure, of how this works is not correct. How you believe this system functions yeah. or works. He talks about a fridge, actually, and this is actually probably the case for a lot of fridges, even the ones that might be near us right now. In his fridge, it has a dial for the temperature in the freezer and the temperature in the, the crisper, the main compartment. Mm -hmm. He's found that he's never been able to really adequately control that, and it's extremely frustrating. Based on this, how many cooling units do you believe there are built into the machine? There are two temperatures. You would think there are two. But there's probably more. Opposite. There's only one. What? There's only one cooling unit in any fridge. And <laughs> what they're actually controlling there is basically, it's, it's weird, honestly, because the way it's set up, you would think there's two separate cooling units, one cooler one for cool air into the, the main refrigerator, and then one for extremely cold air into the freezer. No, it's one it has a valve that siphons off a certain amount of air. Some of it goes to the freezer and then the rest goes to the, the fridge. Oh, wow. It's confusing and it misleads you. They're basically the sins of bad design. I like that. I like that. I, the concept of sins of bad design. Well, thank you. It's not his term, so I will take full credit for it. Oh, that's your concept. Uh, it's more just my label of it. Okay. He has a list of bad design, how to make things bad. Let's, let's look at how to make things bad. Well, first, I'll get to that list soon, but I have a few things I want to save for. Okay. that. So he points out that humans are, our strengths are that we are adaptable, creative, flexible. Machines are none of those things. Machines are the opposite. And so we are constantly forcing humans, the adaptable, creative ones, good on the fly, but not good at being extremely precise. We're forcing them to adapt to machines approaches, which require rigidity. <laughs> and then when we fail to perform in this way, we blame the humans and say it's human error a lot of the time. He pointed out actually something interesting about how if it's human to human interaction, then it works fine. If it's machine to machine interaction, it also works fine. But if it's human to machine interaction, it can often go awry, especially if you're not trained at it. He talks about something from linguistics called common ground. So you might be familiar with this in the counseling context that we have to have a common ground to talk about what we're talking about. So we have shared understanding. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess it's accurate empathy would be the term for that. Uh, no, because it's us discussing. So like, say we're talking about dogs and your idea of a dog is like, a wild dog and mine is a chihuahua, then our common ground is flawed. We're not using the same definitions. So common ground is using the same symbols and ideas and clarifying the semantics of the conversation to understand what the other person's actually saying. Yeah, that's kind of it. Okay. Then I guess I'm not familiar with that other concept. <laughs> that's kind of it. Cause your idea of anger might be different than mine. And I'm really trying to pin down exactly what you mean when you use that word. Sure. Then, okay. That's just another form of it. Yeah. Machines actually have some way of doing this as well. Machines have something called handshaking, which is they say, hey, are you the X? And they're like, yes, I am X. And so then they will, oh, okay, so we can collaborate. Whenever two systems in a network generally communicate, they're introducing each other in this way. Handshaking is actually <laughs> a kind of cute term for it because it's like you're walking up and saying, oh, hello, do you speak this language? Oh, you do. Oh, great. Let's let's proceed. Right. That's how that's how coding language interacts. Uh, coding, but like a lot of different interfaces and stuff. So like, I guess you could technically define like a key going in the proper slot as handshaking right. or into a slot as handshaking because there'll be physical constraints that would stop it. But it's still the initial step. Should we interact? Should we proceed from here or not? Mm, right. People think that machines communicate with us, but they don't so much. He, he points out a distinction here where he says whistles signal people communicate. So machines often just signal something to us, but not clearly and not in a way that we can engage with. It just is like a beep. Mm -hmm. He points out that engineers take a lot of time to be trained to think so logically. And he says they're often made by engineers who are experts in technology, but not experts in people. 
they may think something along the lines of, we are people, so we must understand them. But obviously that's, like I said, not the case at all. <laughs> I'm a person. I must understand people. <laughs> yeah. I know exactly how I function. There's nothing hidden from my view. I'm people. Yeah. I am the average person. Everyone in my society is average. And this is how all the world functions. Yeah. Yes. Go, go travel a bit and see how, if that's the case. So he said that people who have not studied human behavior think it's often very simple and they think that common sense, it's a limit. Yes. Yeah. And then they complain about how common sense is not common. He, he also points out that engineers believe that a purely logical explanation is sufficient if only they read the instructions. But then again, like I said, they're not necessarily designing for humans. Humans are not great at sterile, black and white, very fine print about how to function with a device. The device should imply its use and it should limit you from being able to do huge egregious errors with without any prompts to stop you. <laughs> Moving on to human error again. His stance is that human error is often just laziness or it's our moral drive to blame humans when it's likely a machine or bad design's fault. We like to hold a person responsible and think, there we go, job done. But it's often more complex than that. And it's also unfair. So I'm going to read a, a somewhat lengthy quote unless you have something to put in here. Nope. Okay. Don Norman from uh, the book, The Design of Everyday Things, quote, most industrial accidents are caused by human error, 75 to 95%. How are so many people so incompetent? Answer, they aren't. It's a design problem. If the number of accidents blamed on human error were one to 5%, I might believe that people were at fault. But when the percentage is so high, there clearly must be other factors involved. We design equipment that requires people to be fully alert and attentive for hours, or remember archaic, confusing procedures even when they're only used infrequently, sometimes only once in a lifetime. We put people in boring environments with nothing to do for hours on end until suddenly they must respond quickly and accurately, or we subject them to complex, high workload environments where they are continually interrupted while having to do multiple tasks simultaneously. Then we wonder why there is failure. Mm. We blame and punish, blame and train, we catch the culprit and we feel good. End quote. Love it. Yes. I like this because it, it kind of harkens back to something that Sam Harris has said a bunch of times. And I think anybody that's been listening this far is going to be no, have no surprise that I am a fan of Sam Harris's. Wait, you like Sam Harris? Yeah, right. <laughs> he, he argues that we need better systems and better governments. We should not place entirely the responsibility of being ideal in whatever sense you want to think of that is on the individual. Like, for instance, if we want to be good for the environment, we shouldn't be nagging and lecturing individuals about their carbon footprint, a invention by BP, by the way, BP oil. Uh, we should end up changing the system so that you don't even have to think about it and it will be done. If we expect people to have Herculean strength of will to do things well and to be a good person, then that is a terrible, awful system. Exactly. And I think this is interesting because this design thinking is not just for products. We think of design as, as a, an aesthetic feature of products like an auto designer. But uh, this is a feature for systems as well and, and systems thinking and, and how we design systems centered around humans. Yes, exactly. And as well, a lot of the time when we look back, we think that things could have been easily avoided or say in like security, we'll look back and say they should have detected this. They should have like this one thing they should have been paying more attention to. But people are unaware that there's actually different methods to stop error in this way. One of them is the Swiss cheese model, which we are currently living through an example of actually. Are you familiar with this? What's what's this. What's this? What's this? The Swiss cheese model is you take a number of layers of Swiss cheese that have varying calibration of holes and you make it so that it's difficult for any of them to line up. So there's no straight line between them. There is multiple layers of defense to stop something. Mm. So for instance, in the current situation, the pandemic, we have masks, we have social distancing, we have uh, limitations to being indoors. Uh, we have a, a number of lockdown orders. All these steps are designed to be an extra layer of defense. If we use just one, the chances of it succeeding all the time is going to go down dramatically. But if we use two or three, then the chances of success stopping a failure, stopping something from going wrong goes up dramatically because it would have to be a number of breakdowns for all of these things to fail at once. So that's the Swiss cheese model. Okay. I like that. Yeah. They, they uh, talk about that in recovery from an addiction where mm. you have multiple different coping strategies, not just one. So if one fails, you have the other, you have your social supports, you have your psychological tools, you have your health and your sleep and all of those things kind of lined up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that would make sense because I think, I mean, psychological health is a factor of a, a number of things going together. 
This also, this next one is also a, a thing that I think you would relate to in therapy called the five whys. So this is actually invented by Sakichi Toyota, who is the founder of the Toyota Motor Company. It's not exactly five. It doesn't have to be five precisely, but it just emphasizes that it's got to be quite a few of them. Yes. So the person says, I don't know, I didn't come to an example for this, but it was like, this is the problem. Okay, why? Oh, okay. Here's an example. In the Air Force, they had this plane that kept having issues. The Air Force concluded that it was human error that caused the plane to malfunction and a number of times on a number of occasions. Obviously, that, that implies that there's something deeper going on. But they just said something causes it to go into a, an uncontrolled dive and they don't recover from the dive and they end up crashing and dying. They said, well, the first why, why did they crash and die? Well, the, the pilot failed to recover from the dive. That's as far as they went, and they tried to blame it on human error. Mm -hmm. But when they kept asking why, the second why, why did they fail to do that? They were unconscious. And then the question of why are they unconscious? Because they, they lacked um, enough oxygen because of some design flaw in the ship that allowed it to either cause too, much, too many G-forces that caused them to fall unconscious because there wasn't enough blood to the brain or for whatever reason. Yeah. So why didn't they get enough oxygen because of that? Well, why that? Well, because of this. Yeah. Exactly. So following the trail of wise. But then the military, it took a few years. And the problem with these kinds of discoveries is that the news has moved on. They want a quick, fast answer after there's any problems. And it's usually wrong. And then years later, when the actual truth comes out, which is far more interesting a lot of the time, they don't mention it because it's not news anymore. Nobody, nobody cares. In this example, though, the, the third party investigation said that it was because it was design flawed and it wasn't human error. And the military said, oh, so we agree. We agree that it was the pilot didn't recover the dive. And so they'd still place the blame on them. And you're just like, wow. we agree. It's it's human. The human didn't do it. And you're like, I guess technically, yes, but that's only the, the beginning of the surface. And this, of this question, these five whys, it's so interesting how you can apply it to engineering and, and creative problem solving in that realm, but also in the addiction and mental health field where you can apply the five whys to someone's problem in uh, mental health or anxiety or whatever it is. I'm feeling sad today. Okay. You're feeling sad today. I wouldn't usually ask why because it sounds pretty harsh. Yeah, it seems accusatory and yeah. as if they shouldn't be. Yes, why is not a great answer if you're doing it in therapy, but you are essentially. Yeah, I would. It's discovery, right? I would change it to what you're trying to get down to the root. I would change it to what? Okay, so I would say what's causing you to be sad today? Yeah. So what what led to this sadness today? Right. Yeah, and you'd continue following it down. Or I think we talked about this. I don't know if it was on the podcast or in private, but we talked about how this is how we get to the answer of people's goals. The goal mm -hmm. is often just to be happy, right? Yeah. Keep asking why eventually about somebody's goal. The goal is that they believe it'll increase their net happiness in life or yeah. life satisfaction. When you ask someone why enough, the ultimate answer will be, well, just to be happy. Because I want to. Because I yeah. want to. And I guess why? Because yeah, it'll make them feel better. The bad design part here where he goes in human error again, the final quote I had for that was, Quote, when many people all have the same problem, shouldn't another cause be found? If the system allows you to make an error, then it is badly designed. If the system induces you to make an error, then it is really badly designed. End quote. Ooh, systems inducing errors. That's an abstract way of looking at, you can look at uh, social justice issues. And I know that word has not received a lot of favorable press. Because it's associated with the uh, the parody of the social justice warrior. warrior. The social justice itself is worthwhile. Yes, exactly. And this reminds me of that because a system inducing someone to failure, you can look at systemic injustices regarding uh, class differences and poverty and access to different types of services. Yes. Her people inheriting a, a bunch of money versus people not having that to start with. A lot of, a lot of uh, questions around designing uh, in, a, in the political realm here. The thing is, a lot of this is, is just legacy effects. They're things that have happened, and some of them were consciously to keep certain groups down, but other ones were just the way things were operating and nobody's questioned it enough. Yeah. Kind of like how I've talked in the past, I think, about uh, we're currently legislating high-tech stuff by using, like, the telecoms, I mean, sorry, the states is they're using like telecoms uh, legislation from back when f like rotary phones were like the cutting edge of technology. To me, this is the comparison I keep making is it's like we're trying to legislate indoor flushing toilets by studying laws for outhouses <laughs> long before indoor toilets were a thing. Right. It's just it doesn't mesh at all. Right, right. But I don't know if you're curious. Did you want to hear about the, the list of ways to make something hard to use or just pure bad design? Yeah, I want to hear the 
Is this the sins of bad design? Sort of, not entirely. Okay. These are the things you want to generally avoid for good design, but you want to do them on purpose when it's high stakes. So like say a nuclear launch, if you had it like a single unguarded button that didn't say what it did and didn't even like have an indication that it turned on, that would be a huge design flaw that you would want to avoid. Mm -hmm. So in these ways, we make these are making it inconvenient on purpose so that people can't do them. But if you want good design practices, flip all these on their head. Okay. Hide critical components, make things invisible. So just make it so like, if there's something really important, like a button on a screen, make it so you can't see it. <laughs> uh, so, or, or so only the engineer that wants to know, wants to use it knows where it is. Like certain phones, actually, my one phone, you had to tap a certain corner. There's nothing visible there. You had to tap a certain corner a number of times or hold it down, I forget, on a certain screen. And then suddenly it'll unlock the back end stuff that only software people should be having access to. The next one is use unnatural mappings for the execution side of the action cycle. So an action cycle is like you're, you're using the thing, basically. You're doing an action on the object. So like, for instance, turning on your oven to cook something, that would be the execution side. I'm turning it on, okay? Mm -hmm. So then the, you want to do this so that the relationship between the controls and the thing being controlled is unrelated or haphazard. It just doesn't seem to connect. For example, there are a bunch of ovens, actually. This was an example of bad design. Ovens often have these switches for the burners left to right in a series. And the burners themselves are in the kind of a, a two by two, kind of like a box kind of formation. And that's really, really stupid because left or right is that front or back. Like mine actually isn't that bad. The left burners have two switches on the left. The back one is top and the, the front one is bottom. That actually is called a natural mapping. Mm -hmm. It is mapping it to approximately where the things are. But if you do, did it in a straight line, then it's like... If you think about it on large scales, people are going to accidentally turn on the wrong burner, which can result in fires or death as a result. Right. So it's stupid to, to not think of that, but yet it continues to happen. Yeah. It, is al it is always kind of confusing when you're trying to figure, okay, which burner is this one? You have to think about it for a second. Yeah, that's common because oftentimes they, they mentioned that when you're buying a house or something, it comes with a lot of the appliances, so you don't actually get to choose. So the buyer and the user are not the same person, which means they don't really give a shit. Then to expand on this, you also use unnatural mappings for the evaluation side of the system. So you can't tell what the state is in, like, is it on or not? Actually, my oven, I don't think it has a, a light to say that it's hot. <laughs> I just realized so it can be on and I can forget about it unless the burner itself is the only mapping for whether it's on or functioning or not. You'll feel heat. Right. Yeah. So that's that's a bad design. Like my, my oven is not perfect, but it's it's OK, I guess it's not really even mine. The next one is to make actions physically difficult to do. Like you have to use a lot of strength, to like push a lever or something. Mm -hmm. You don't give any feedback. So there's no click or beep or buzz or anything that indicates that you actually completed the thing. You push a button, no sound, no, no light, nothing <laughs> happens. You don't even know if you pushed it far enough. That's, that's bad feedback. <laughs> then make it so the opening sequence of doing it is as identical as possible from another procedure and it deviates at a critical point leading to something called a capture error. <laughs> the last one is requiring precise timing and physical manipulation of something under stress a lot of the time. In World War II, the United States had lost hundreds of planes in accidents. Uh, it was the Boeing B-17 Flying Fortress, and they couldn't figure out why. It was just a, a lot of times when they came in for landing, there would be some problem that would cause the plane to crash and just burn on the, the runway. It was a, in 1942, a young psychology graduate named Alphonse Chapini, Chapinis. <laughs> no, I'm going to keep, I'm going to cut out that last one. Chapini, I think. C-H-A-P-A-I-N-I-S. <laughs> Anyway, he, he came in and evaluated what was going on. This actually led to the birth, I think, of uh, psychological engineering. The problem was, was that pilots frequently retracted the, the landing gear instead of using the flaps to brake. What happened was because the two levers were on the same side of the plane, they were identical, and you had to reach down under the pressure of landing after coming back from a battle... You land the plane, you reach down, you grab what you hope is the brake, but it ends up being the landing gear, causing the landing gear to go up as you're landing, and you just hit the runway. Wow. What he ended up doing, it just it didn't take that much. He put a small rubber wheel on the landing gear so that you could you could feel the difference, and then he made the um, the flap lever to be a small wedge shape handle. So you just change the handle so you could tell by feel which one you're grabbing. Oh. And by doing this, it almost completely eliminated this quote unquote pilot error. Ooh, I like it. Such a simple solution. Yeah, it often doesn't take that much, but you need somebody to actually have foresight and to, to think about it. Yeah. One of the points he makes in um, Design of Future Things was that currently our machines are not smart because he was talking about like a car. It has There's a, something called adaptive um, cruise control. That's it. Adaptive cru cruise control. Thank you. Uh, where if a car is in front of you and it's going at a slower speed, it will detect it and it'll slow down to match the speed and keep a good distance. The thing is, this guy 
we talked about how he almost killed himself by using that because it was busy traffic. He kept having to manually intervene, but the traffic, the cruise control was still on. So he was getting off the highway and going on the, on the off ramp. He felt his car start accelerating back up to highway speeds when he should be decelerating. And that's because it was still on. So the first reaction was often just that, oh, he's a terrible, irresponsible driver. And the second one was, oh, well, it should have a built-in thing to, to stop that. But his point with looking at this was right now, there's no relationship between machine and what it's doing. It's just executing if-then statements. It's not intelligent. Yeah. And so he's talking about future design needs to incorporate this because right now we need one person, the designer or programmer, I guess, to figure out all possible situations like this at a desk without actually engaging in what's going on. And that's obviously not going to ha happen because we're not omniscient. Yeah. We don't know everything. Yeah. You can't design from the ivory tower. Right. That's kind of what he's implying. So I'm, I'm in the home stretch here. <laughs> I, there's a lot I wanted to cover. So he talks about the four kinds of constraints that you can actually add to something to, to make it safer. So there are four. I'm just going to list them. I'll give you examples as well. Physical, cultural, semantic, and logical. So physical, it means that there should be physical constraints on how something can be done. Like a key cannot fit in a lock that it, it's not designed for. And even if it can fit in the lock, then the teeth will stop it from turning it. Like when you take something apart, you can see there actually are only a limited number of ways to, that these parts can interact. You're not going to try to put, uh, like, so for instance, like a washer, a bolt, and a nut. There's implications based on the design on the order they should go in, right? The, you're not going to try to like stick the, the head of the nut through where it's supposed to be fed through because it won't fit. There, there are physical limitations that stop it. Mm -hmm. The example he gave was traditional batteries. So let's say a AA, the bigger ones, or AAA. With those, they could definitely have better constraints because if you put them in the wrong way and try to operate it, some machines will be damaged by this because the polarity is wrong. And he talked about how we could either have it so that we make a battery that's shaped in a way that can only go in in a certain way say making it more triangular or angled or having a notch so that it could only fit one way into these things mm. that's one way of stopping it or you can make it so that it doesn't matter in the machines it doesn't matter which way you put the battery in it'll function either way and microsoft has actually been trying to do this they created something like that to make it so that you could put it in either way but it never took off and they still don't use it themselves so a lot of legacy things carry on just because wow the next constraint is cultural so cultural ones are interesting because they're constraints on how we can act in a given situation. If you want an easiest explanation, it's the fact that you can walk into any restaurant and you know how to operate, you know how to function. It's a common thing that we do. You sit down, you order in a particular way, and certain behaviors are accepted and certain behaviors are, are not. Uh, <laughs> you'll know when you hit a cultural clash if you're in another country because people will obviously notice. These are the constraints that you need to take into consideration when designing for particular locations. An easy example is the Nova. I can't remember which car company made that, but they were selling it in a Spanish-speaking country. And Nova in English is an exploding star, kind of cool image. But in Spanish, it means no go. <laughs> so that's a terrible name for a car. <laughs> I've had examples like this with traveling with Chinese friends. When we were doing road trips, Chinese people are more likely to buy a large amount and divvy it out to their friends and take turns doing such a thing. Whereas in my experience, when going on road trips, we each buy our own thing and we can share if we choose. But a lot of it, you're just buying for yourself. There was clashes for me with this example because I would go in, buy my own stuff, and then be waiting at the front. And then my one of my companions would come up with a huge whack of stuff, and I would watch him bring it up and pay for it. And he would basically criticize me, saying that I disappeared when it came time to pay. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I bought my own stuff. <laughs> and so I was seen as being selfish and not being part of the group, but that was just a, a misunderstanding based on culture. Right, right. And as well, I think if you're one of those people listening right now and you think those don't hold me back, you should try breaking them, even just basic ones. Like for instance, standing facing the wrong way in an elevator. I was just about to say. Or while in the elevator. Yeah. Yeah. Looking at somebody directly in the elevator. Or I think the, one of the funny examples he gave was when you're on a public transit, giving an athletic young person your seat, especially if you're elderly or pregnant. Because <laughs> people will be confused as hell. Another he pointed out was the four-way stop. It took a while for us to have shared conventions on the roads and for everyone to understand them. Because at first, people didn't know who was supposed to go first. Mm -hmm. So they, it was, was it the first person who got there? Was it the person on the right? Was it the highest social status person? <laughs> Apparently, all of these have been tried. I like the social status one. I don't like it in practice, but I think it's funny <laughs> in theory. <laughs> Who's got the nicest car? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so it's the guy that likes nice cars. Oh, wow. I would always be last then. Oh, the last two are difficult to distinguish between a little bit. Uh, so semantic means the study of meaning, which it relies on the meaning of a situation to restrict what you can do. So in the example of, say, a motorcycle, there's only one reasonable place for the rider to sit. 
for the windshield, its design is to block things from getting in the rider's face. So there's, again, a constraint on where this can go. It has to go in front of the person. This and the cultural one can both change with time because these things will change as the functions of something changes. So for example, when we look at self-driving cars, will we still have red lights in the back of the cars? And if we do, who will they be signaling to and what will they be signaling? Because if all the cars are self-driving, we don't need to know that the car in front of us is braking. They're already communicating. So it will probably give some other indication in the future. Interesting. Final one is logical constraints. Often, <laughs> if you ever did any home reno projects, you might try to say, fix your, your tap. Take all the stuff apart and you fix it and then you put it back together, but then you find you still have a piece left over. So logically, he, it still belongs there, but you did something wrong. So these are logical con constraints on these things. Forget, I can't, I have no example for this one. Sorry, <laughs> other than the tap. Ways to fix these things. One way is called a forcing function. So there's interlocking, lock-in, and lock-out. Interlocking means that the next step cannot be engaged until the previous step has been done appropriately. Easy example, microwaves. Unless the door is closed with the latch pushing down what's called a dead man switch, you cannot proceed. Some people have stupidly gone around and put like caulking in there to keep it pressed down so they could do it whenever. Not advised. Best not to do that. Wow. The main function is to prevent people from getting injured if they're operating something. Uh, I think like a lawnmower is another example. You have to hold that thing down. It's again, another dead man switch. It has to be held down actively or else the machine will stop. Though if you uh, hold it, you can technically, if you have long enough reach, adjust the height of the mower while keeping it on if you haven't tried. You could do that, but it's not advised. No. <laughs> again, but if it, again, if it allows you to do it, then it's not great design. It can be improved. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Next step, lock-in, stops you from prematurely stopping an ongoing process. So when you quit, say, your writing application, it will not let you quit without a prompt asking if you'd like to save if you haven't saved already. Or it can be stuff like literal jails or baby pens. Even more more abstractly, it can be brands trying to lock you in by only having having a very different usage style. Like Mac, for instance, it's difficult to adapt to Windows if you're used to Mac or vice versa. Or making them only mesh with certain things like EPUB readers. I freaking hate EPUB whenever I come across it. <laughs> uh, but they do this for a reason because they want you to lock in. They want to make it difficult for you to switch. And in his opinion, Don Norman's opinion, this makes everybody lose. Even if one company ends up winning overall, all of us lose because it ends up being a kind of monopoly. Finally, there are lockouts. It stops people from being able to do something as well. It locks you out. In the example he gave, people, when they're freaking out from a fire, they go to the stairwell and they run all the way down. They run down, 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 all the way to the bottom. Unfortunately, in the past, in older buildings, that led to the basement, which led to a lot of people dying in the basement because they couldn't get out. So now they have a law that stops people from being able to do that. It stops at the ground floor and you have to go and find a separate stairwell to go all the way to the basement. Oh, interesting. This is by design. It's mildly inconvenient, but it's there on purpose. I didn't know that. Same with like pins and grenades or fire extinguishers. Yeah. Never thought, I never realized that the, the stairwell has to come off at the main floor. Uh, I think it depends on state by state. I think Canada probably requires it. Two more things. Actually, there was more than that, but we're running out of time and I actually almost got through everything. How did you do it? Norman's law is that on the day the design begins, it will be over budget and past schedule. Most people don't understand what design is, what is included in it, or how thorough it should be if you want to do it right. They underallocate those resources because they believe that it's simpler than it is. And then they end up with the results like we were talking about with the unintended consequences of that speed bump. Yeah, it's the, the, the preconception that designers are just creatives uh, who are pretentious and, and uh, sitting back with their paintbrushes <laughs> and, and uh, art pencils and doing art projects. Yes, it's actually a very interesting combination between technical skills, understanding systems, psychology. In the past, I used to see that the only real application for psychology a lot of the time, if you wanted, besides counseling, was in marketing. And honestly, I hate that. I feel like or designing gaming machines, just basically trying to get it so that people are as addicted or giving as much money or attention as possible. Mm -hmm. And I feel like both of those are kind of selling your soul, especially the gambling one. Yeah. But I never found advertising to be that much better either because it's just, oh God, it's just more noise. Yeah. Personally, having read this book, I was enraptured because it seems like an actual productive use of psychology where we could use it to improve people's lives. Yeah, it's a it's design and psychology coming together for the betterment of humanity. Yeah. One of the points he, he makes, the final one I have before the conclusion, mm -hmm. on radical innovation. He says that everyone says they want radical innovation, but this is my wording. It's more like parsimony. 
oftentimes this new radical thing will be, oh, we haven't even talked about that. Parsimony is like picking up an idea. And if it has to, if you change too much of the currently understood and established scientific theory, you would have to find something that's simpler to fit in. Basically, the simpler the idea that fits in with the current framework, probably the more accurate it is or the better it is, assuming that the system's not fundamentally flawed, which sometimes it is because like when evolution happened, it upended everything. But in this case, if we try to design something and it has to change too much of the current infrastructure we have, then it's probably not going to work. And that's why incremental change is usually the winner because more people are willing to accept and try it. For instance, the Model T was designed as it looks like a carriage that was drawn by a horse and it was literally called a horseless carriage when it first came out because that's what people were comfortable with. Yeah. So what what did you think about this? I, I have the conclusion I wrote up, but I, I'm sorry I steamrolled you on this one because it's just, there's so much to get to. Nothing new. Nothing, Nothing new. new. I mean, that was the kind of conception of the podcast. You steamrolling me is the conception of this podcast. I'll be explaining stuff and you're just, you're a stand-in for people who don't know what wow. we're talking about, but also with good insight. I have thoughts too. You do. You're a, valu- you're a valuable person. You're not just a, a listening dummy. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that is your job though. <laughs> listening dummy <laughs> except for the ones that i will be leading in the ah future. yes the the ever so <laughs> unseen your led episodes <laughs> but yes those ones there'll be another one there'll one of these days one. the elusive that's the word i was looking for all right so <laughs> the elusive conclusion design spans everything we do most things that exist in our lives were designed by someone at some time Sometimes they lead to frustration or are ugly or don't fully scratch the itch that they're intending to scratch. The purpose of design is to improve our lives in a way that makes them enjoyable, functional, efficient, and safe experiences. It's just filling our lives with these things. Think about when you use a luxury vehicle of some sort. It is designed for these kinds of things. Stopping stupid errors from happening. Mm -hmm. Stopping, definitely not encouraging stupid errors. Making things so intuitive, you don't even have to think about it. Like when you you think, Mm -hmm. if I want to do this thing, I would reach with this. And then you go, oh, it's right there. Like, where's that thing? Oh, it's right here. Every time you are going to think about something, it's right there. When something goes wrong and we blame people, it's often bad design. And I think that the reason we want to keep this in mind is because it's easy to think, oh, that person's stupid. Going by what's called the fundamental attribution error or the actor observer bias. We assume that when we're watching somebody else do something that it's internal, it's caused by them. But oftentimes it's actually caused by a situation which we know when we look at our own actions. I'm going to end here, at least what I have to say, with the Don Norman quote, one of his quotes. Quote, when a bridge collapses, we analyze the incident to find the causes of the collapse and reformulate the design rules to make sure that accident never happens again. When we discover that electronic equipment is malfunctioning because it's responding to unavoidable electrical noise, we redesign the circuits to make them more tolerant of the noise. But when an accident is thought to be caused by people, we blame them, then continue doing things as they've always been done. End quote. Love it. Yeah, don't blame the victim. Don't blame the victim. Yes. Generally, that is a takeaway of design, especially if it's between man versus machine. We should probably examine the machine and not expect people to live up to the standards of machines requirements. Anything you want to add? Yeah. Not blaming the victim for (laughs) any thoughts after all of that. Yeah. After that that huge information dump. (laughs) (laughs) Don't blame the the users of complicated, poorly designed technologies. uh, And don't blame the persons who are struggling in the society, sociologically, psychologically, uh, because they are also uh, users of a, ba- of a poorly designed system. Yes. Not that the whole system is poorly designed, but the, the poorly designed elements of our social system. The cracks. Yes. But also I think one of the themes that you kept going back to was discovery, focusing on the discovery phase, looking into things, don't taking people at their word and actually finding hard data that shows, or at least direct observations in the, the actual environment. In counseling language, meeting people where they are at. Yes. All right. Well, thank you for tuning in. This is the part where we're going to actually put a call to action because we have not done that yet. Can you please, please, if you're enjoying this, put a a review or comment on your whatever app you have, leave a review because that would definitely help us find a broader audience. Please tell your friends. So thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time. Take care. Thank you, Professor Phil. You're welcome. Thank you for the, thank you for the lecture. You're welcome.